The True Crime Society podcast contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. It is April 18th, and we're back. It seems like probably not long to you guys, but I haven't spoken to Olivia really for like at least a week because mm. she had her big trip to Japan, and she's Ooh. finally back. <laughs> we got back yesterday at 10 a.m. after a massive, massive day of travel. Like The flight's only 10 hours, but because we had to get the bullet train from Osaka to Tokyo, and then waiting around at the airport. Like it was just, it was by the time we walked in the door at my house, I think it was like 24 hours of travel. <laughs> so it Ugh. was a big, big, big day. But it was so good. Like I'll just give a quick recap because I know probably not everyone cares that much. But the first, but some people care. <laughs> and I had so many messages from people because I posted a few photos and I had so many nice messages from people wanting to know more. And as a reminder, if you don't want to hear us talk about this, <laughs> there's a timestamp in the episode description so you can fast forward right to the start of the story. Okay, go on. So, so the day we were leaving, which was like it's all a blur now. It feels like we were over there for a year when we were there for like eight days or something like that. But um, the first day that we were meant to fly out, I woke, my alarm was set for 2.50 a.m., woke up, looked at my phone, and the first thing I saw was a text saying, sorry, your flight's been canceled. And I was like, oh, mm. my goodness. So I was like, what do we do? What do we do? Anyway, but it was such a – ridiculous text because it said like I'm paraphrasing but it was sorry your flight's been cancelled we're trying to see if we can find you another flight we'll keep you posted but when I actually logged on and looked at my flight they had found us another flight so it was such an unnecessary panic really in the end and we ended up going via we had we were going to have a stopover anyway for a few hours and I think this stopover was another half an hour longer so we ended up arriving about an hour later than we should have so it could have been much much worse and I was just like I hope this isn't going to be the tone for the trip now like everything's going to go wrong but it was amazing Amazing. Nothing went wrong. All the places we stayed were amazing. It was just, it was so busy because we were there for such a short time. Like we didn't want to waste any time. So for a week, I think we walked like 120 kilometers, which I don't even know how many miles that is. A lot of miles, <laughs> um, like over 150,000 steps in that time. My feet are broken. <laughs> the second last day, the bottom of my foot came up in a blister. I'm so glad it was the second oh, no. last day. So last night, even when I went to bed, I had to put pillows under the sheet so I could sleep with my feet elevated because they were so swollen it's from the flight as well, which I've never, ever, ever had before. But I think it was just because of the amount of walking. But such an amazing country. I can't even begin to describe how wild it is and how crazy it is. What was like the biggest like culture shock or thing that like shocked you the most, I guess? <laughs> I think just mainly the well it's not really well I guess it is a culture shock but just how busy because to get around in Japan the easiest way is generally the train system so I said to Stephanie like we had big you know suitcases there was eight of us which is a big group in Japan because a lot of people can a lot of like restaurants and bars can fit four people for example (laughs) so sometimes it was a struggle to find somewhere that was large enough to fit us all but one day we had to go on the bullet train with all our bags getting on the subway in Shinjuku station which is apparently one of the busiest stations in the world they have over three million people a day go through that station 
So try to figure that out. By the end, we were, you know, pros at it. We knew exactly what to do and where to go. But it can be quite intimidating, especially with the language barrier. Thank goodness for Google Maps and Google Translate. But it's just crazy. Like in Tokyo, middle of the city, Tokyo is an enormous city, but, you know, there's temples and shrines and it's just all intermingled, kind of the new with the old everywhere. But, yeah, it was just amazing. Like I absolutely recommend it. We're already talking about going back. We'll take the kids back. They would love it. But, I, yeah, if you can ever get get there I recommend it absolutely what was your favorite food that you ate um the food there the Japanese food there that we had which isn't really surprising is quite different to what we have here like I've always heard that our Japanese food is quite westernized Mm um I don't know we went so in Kyoto we went to this I found this lady on TripAdvisor and she's rated the number one restaurant in Kyoto and you go to what is essentially her house so you go there she has a little bar that she cooks at and you sit around the counter I think it can fit eight people like maximum and she cooks for you there and the food was amazing and I think her food is probably a little bit more westernized but she cooked like gyoza and just beautiful delicious food not as kind of out there as some of the Japanese food that we did try um Mm. so I'd say that her the whole experience there was amazing she was so lovely and then she sent she even sent me a message the next morning which who who, what who does that she's like thank (laughs) you for visiting us say hello to everyone for me (laughs) so cute she was so lovely so um, we had some like interesting food, some things I probably wouldn't try again. We went to a Michelin starred restaurant in Kyoto, which was kind of like a bucket list thing. And the food was so ornate and so intricate. But like some of the things were like a whole fish where you eat every part, every part of the fish. Wow. So <laughs> it was amazing. It was a great for a one-off experience. I wouldn't do that again now I've done it, but um, it was something that we wanted to try. So it was all amazing. Everything just just the whole culture is amazing. They're so friendly, so polite, so kind. Even like when we were taking up space on the train with all our big bags, people would like almost apologize that they had to get off the train. Mm. (laughs) Whereas here they'd just be pushing past and, you know, being rude. So yeah, it's a very, it's an amazing place. I can't, I could talk about it all day. (laughs) And you almost got bombed by North Korea and the the prime minister attack while you were there. (laughs) It's so funny because in most of the hotels too, there's no English TV channels. I think one one had CNN out of the five or whatever that we stayed at. Everywhere else had no English channels, so we didn't watch any TV. Like, you know, if I'm on holidays, if I'm sitting down, you know, getting ready to go out or whatever, I'll put the news on or watch the news, but you just couldn't do that there. So we were on a bullet Mm. train. I don't even know where we were going, somewhere. And my friend's like, you all right? I'm like, yeah, why? And she sent me this thing about North Korea is bombing Japan and there's an evacuation order. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, we wouldn't have even known about that. Like, And because we weren't, you know, you have less data to use and stuff like that when you're overseas, we weren't checking the news and social media as often. But anyway, so it turned out to be a false alarm, thankfully. They did apparently issue an evacuation order for Hokkaido, which is the north of Japan. And at that stage, we're at the south. So we weren't really near it. No one even mentioned it. The next day, they did have, like, we got a paper delivered to the hotel room and it was the front page news. Um, but it was seems like it was a bit of a false alarm, thankfully. And then, yeah, you messaged me or someone messaged me saying that the Prime Minister had apparently almost been assassinated <laughs> yeah like again someone tried to assassinate him not that long ago too <laughs> it's all happening over there <laughs> yeah well I'm glad you had a good time yep home safe I had a massive sleep last night like we didn't sleep a lot like I love sleeping I've spoken about that a lot <laughs> but because <laughs> we go out for late nights get up early like it was it was exhausting like I think that was the maximum amount I could have done I said at the end someone's like I could do a few more days I'm like I could not 
<laughs> no I need to go and have a rest. So had a big sleep last night. Even on the plane, I always find it hard to sleep on the plane, but we did two plane trips yesterday and both I was asleep before takeoff. Mm. So yeah, no, hopefully tomorrow I'll be back to my 100% best. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. But anyway, great, amazing trip. Like couldn't have gone any better. Couldn't have asked for any more. Well, happy you're back. <laughs> How have you been? Um, Good. I just... Last episode, I was talking about how Peep wouldn't even come record with me and that she wasn't feeling so well. So I have a little Peep update. She is right here in my lap, feeling much better. She'll maybe give us a meow if she feels up <laughs> up for it, but she's dozing off a little. She didn't do it. She did it right before we started recording. <laughs> that yeah. was her. But so I did end up bringing her to the animal hospital because, of course, it was like Easter weekend and everything was just crazy. So I brought her to the animal hospital because she was having really bad pain in her, her little mouth. And turns out she had has a bad infection in some of her teeth. And they had to give her, they gave her a little antibiotic shot in her butt, not in her butt, like on her butt (laughs) (laughs) and some painkillers. And I had to try to give her some more painkillers when I got home. Nat seems the antibiotics are working. So she's back to her normal, sassy, rude self being a nuisance. But unfortunately, I do have to bring her to the animal hospital on Thursday. So the day this comes out that morning, I'll be bringing Peep to have a little surgery to get some of her teeth removed, which is going to cost me a lot of money. So next (laughs) time anyone feels like leaving a review about how there's too many ads, just remember (laughs) they're paying for Peep's dental health. And now she's going to be a little toothless kitty. When you hear this episode, uh, send some good wishes my way because, oh, I I should also say bringing her to the vet is a nightmare. Like she is easier to get into the carrier than my other cat who's like a big monster. I can get her in, but she cries the whole way. So again, (laughs) she cried the whole way there crying in the waiting room all the other animals are nice and well behaved and quiet and she's in her carrier just going meow 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 i have her carrier even covered with a blanket Aww. and she also pooped in the carrier in oh, the car nice. again yeah, poop. <laughs> she has that's her new thing so we'll see if we're gonna be three for three on Thursday. Uh, so, well, at least yeah, you've got I'll- it sorted and you know <clears throat> what the procedure needs to be and hopefully she'll be all sorted this week yeah she can't just like let me save money for my wedding or <laughs> let me enjoy my bridal shower because uh. now some of the money I got from the bridal shower, it's all going going to Miss Peep. Uh. She can't just let me have my day. Uh. Hopefully she will after this week. Mm, then she's going to be a toothless little baby. I don't know how to deal with a post-op cat, so hopefully mm. they, they tell me. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, so I'll keep everyone posted on on Instagram or something on her, her post-op updates. <laughs> So yeah, today we are going to be talking about Elizabeth Smart, which is an older case, but it was a really, really big one at the time. You mentioned in the episode, it was like a little similar time-ish. It was two years earlier than Maura Murray. Um, So it was kind of when like the internet was becoming like a bigger thing. I remember this was one of those cases where every day there was like an update on TV because her family was making pleas and giving updates every day. And I remember like at dinner, like it would always be on on the news. I feel like probably everyone will have heard of this case. But then we were thinking it's been a long time, even me who followed it, like you forget a lot of stuff along the way. People who are newer to true crime, maybe just got into it with like Gabby Petito or the Moscow murders might not know as much about it. 
So we thought it'd be um, a good one to get into. It was just the 20 year anniversary in March of when she was rescued. So I still remember it so vividly. Like <clears throat> I never ever thought they would find her alive, especially. No so yeah, it was a wild case when it happened. But yeah, so she was kidnapped when she was 14 years old on June 5th, 2002 by a man named Brian David Mitchell. And she was held captive by him and his wife for like nine months. She was rescued March 12th, 2003. And this happened out of um, like Salt Lake City, Utah area. But yeah, it was crazy. It was just crazy. Like the details in this case are crazy. I use clips in this from... There's um it was on A and E. It's like the Elizabeth Smart autobiography. It's two episodes. They're both like an hour long. The whole thing's actually on YouTube for free. But I did use a lot of clips from that. And I always get worried when I use a lot of clips because I don't want people to think it's like lazy storytelling. But I will say it is way harder on my part to find all these clips and put all these clips in versus having no clips. But I did want to include them because I think it's really interesting to hear her and her family talk about it from firsthand and it adds a lot of insight to it. So I did use a good amount of clips from that. And one other thing I did want to clarify. So the guy's, the kidnapper's name is Brian David Mitchell, but he also goes by the name Emmanuel. And I've noticed that Elizabeth in the clip, she refers to him just as Mitchell. And then there's another guy who refers to him as David. Basically, just keep in mind, in all the clips, the guy they're talking about is the same guy. Yeah, we've we've looked and we tried to see if there was kind of a consistent name that he's called that doesn't really seem to be, um, but yeah, all the same guy. And it's the same with his wife, Wanda Barzi. She also, sometimes they refer to her as just Barzi, Wanda, and I think her fake name was Hepzibah. So just keep that in mind if you hear some different names. It's all the, the same people for the most part. So don't forget, you can get $25 off your betting order for a limited time when you visit etitude.com slash TCS. That's spelled E-T-T-I-T-U-D-E dot com slash TCS. The Etitude team are so sure that you'll love your new sheets. You can also try them for 30 nights risk-free and return them with no questions asked. Again, that's etitude.com slash TCS. Happy sleeping. Every parent's worst nightmare. 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped from her home. Police in Salt Lake City say they have hundreds of leads. In the kidnapping of 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart. When my case finally came to trial, about eight years after I was rescued, I felt as I stood up on that stand and as I gave my testimony, it was just question after question after question. I mean, it was just felt like facts on a sheet of paper. It didn't feel like it was real. It didn't feel like it was really my story. Next, we turn to the latest on the Elizabeth Smart kidnapping. I wanted to say, you heard the facts, but you don't understand what it was like. You have no idea. I have a knife at your neck. Don't make a sound. Get up and come with me. This 14-year-old girl is at the center of a mystery and an intense search. I wasn't just raped. I was chained up. I was starved. I was denied water. I was denied food. This is a sick, misguided person. People still say to me, why when your captors took you out in public didn't you escape? They took you to a party. You couldn't escape then? You encountered police officers. Why didn't you tell them who you were? Did you sympathize with your captors? Why didn't you try to save yourself? The truth is, I made my rescue. 
possible. And I want people to know that. It's real. Now, I want to tell my story. The whole story. The real story of what really happened. All right, so we'll get into some background information about Elizabeth Smart. She was born on November 3rd, 1987 in Salt Lake City, Utah. Her parents are Edward and Lois Smart. Elizabeth has four brothers and one sister. Their names are Mary Catherine, William Edward, Charles, and Andrew. The family's part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so they're LDS. Ed, the father, he worked as a real estate and mortgage broker at the time. They were... A pretty well-off family. Um, Seemed quite wholesome. Yeah. They they weren't, like, super, super rich, but they were definitely, like... Comfortable. Yeah. I mean, maybe they were super, super rich. This is just me judging from the outside, but (laughs) they were well-off enough. Yeah. Um, So the day before her abduction was June 4th, 2002. The Smart family did not get home that night until late in the evening. They attended the Bryant Middle School Awards function, and Elizabeth got awards in physical fitness, and academics. In the early hours of June 5th, 2002, Elizabeth and Mary Catherine were asleep in a bedroom of the smart home. So a man entered the house by cutting a window screen near the back door. Mary Catherine heard the man threaten Elizabeth if she didn't stay quiet. Mary Catherine pretended to be asleep through the abduction, and Elizabeth was 14 at the time this happened, and Mary Catherine was nine years old. Um, So... I'm pretty sure they were reading a book together. They said they were reading Ella Enchanted, went to sleep. Mary Catherine was woken up by this man taking Elizabeth, but she was too scared to get up or do anything right away. So she just kind of listened and waited until the coast was clear to try to get help. The next thing I remember was being awakened in the middle of the night and it was still dark. And at first I heard this voice. And when I first heard it, I thought it had to be part of a dream. Then I heard it again. This time as the voice spoke, I not only heard it, but I opened my eyes. Standing above me was this dark shadow of a man. And I remember him saying, I have a knife at your neck. Don't make a sound get up and come with me. And that second time that I heard this voice, I mean, I was instantly awake. I could feel the knife at my neck. What if I don't do what he says? He might take my sister. He might hurt my sister. I have to go. And she got up out of bed and they went into the bathroom and the closet. Going in to get a pair of shoes meant that we were going outside. We were going somewhere other than my home. I was asking him why he was doing this when he said, I'm taking you hostage for ransom. And they go out the hallway and we we had some squeaks on the floor so you could kind of tell where they were. As he was taking me out through my house, he had whispered to me, if you scream, if you yell, like, I'll kill your family or I'll kill you. And really, at that point, I thought maybe he already had killed some of my family. It seemed like either do what he says and go with him or have your neck cut open and die. I could hear the grandfather clock ticking from downstairs. Dad, 
please wake up. I was praying in my mind. Mom, can you hear me? Please wake up and save me. So Mary Catherine told police later on that the abductor was a white man who was around the same height as her brother, Charles, who's 5'8". She said he was 30 to 40 years old. He was wearing a light he was wearing light colored clothes and a golf hat. She said he had dark hair on his head as well as dark hair on his arms and hands. Mary Catherine said that she thought that he had a gun. In the end, I think he really, he had a knife, but she didn't know that at the time, obviously. She said Elizabeth said ouch at one point after she stubbed her toe and the abductor said something along the lines of, you better be quiet and I won't hurt you. She said she thought she heard Elizabeth ask, why are you doing this? And the man replied for ransom. Mary Catherine said the abductor was polite, calm, and nicely dressed. She also said she thought his voice sounded familiar, but she couldn't recall where she'd heard it from before. After Elizabeth and the abductor left the room, Mary Catherine ran to tell her parents what happened. She saw then that Elizabeth and the man were still in the house outside the bedroom of her brothers. She crept quietly back into her bed where she hid for up to two hours. So she didn't end up telling her parents. Then she went to go tell her parents and saw them and got scared and went and hid for two more hours. She's the same age as my youngest daughter now. I just can't even imagine the terror that poor kid must have felt. Yeah, and I remember at the time it was shitty because, of course, people were like, why didn't she do anything? Like, yeah. She's a freaking little kid. Yeah. So just before 4 a.m., Mary Catherine went and told her parents what happened. They at first didn't believe her until they found that the window screen had been cut. Mary Catherine comes wandering into the room and says, Dad, you know, somebody's taken Elizabeth. Just being woken up to something like that was very startling and thinking like, oh, you know, she's had a bad dream. She's got to be here somewhere. This, this can't be happening. The thing I remember first was my dad just coming in here and saying, hey, is Elizabeth in here? What's, where is she? As I made the rounds upstairs and then went down the stairs and into the kitchen, once again from the top, Mary Catherine reiterated, somebody has taken her, you're not going to find her. And I went running downstairs and there was a big panel of light switches and I remember I just hit them all. And as I looked over in the kitchen, I saw the window that um, I had opened to let the smoke out. The screen had been cut, I could see that. And then I screamed, and that was the beginning of our nightmare, telling Ed we need to call the police. Wow, Elizabeth's gone. Something really awful has happened to our family. There wasn't a handbook on knowing what to do. I remember waking up that night to probably one of the worst um, sounds I've ever heard, and that was my mom um, just crying. I remember going downstairs because I've never heard my mother cry like this. I've never once in my life seen my mom acting the way she was. It was beyond me. But they called the police. I just started picking up the phone, calling everyone that I could, all my friends, family, and um, you know, said, you know, I've got to have your help. But the police were called first. I knew it was really bad. My sister was gone. She was my whole world. I knew it was bad. Documentary I watched today, one of the 
investigators or something, he said, you know, since this was the middle of the night, it was actually like a graveyard shift. So the police that were on duty and responded to this were basically rookies who were inexperienced and didn't really know what to do or how to handle this. On June 6th, 2002, Ed and Lois went on television and pleaded for the kidnapper to return Elizabeth. Ed Smart said, if you can hear me, Elizabeth is the sweetest girl. She's an angel. Please let her go. Please. I mean, she doesn't do anything to anyone and there's no reason that you should have her. Elizabeth, if you're out there, we're doing everything we possibly can to help you. We love you. We want you to come home safely to us. The latest on a developing story, and it involves every parent's worst nightmare. Authorities in Salt Lake City, Utah, say 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart was taken from her bedroom in the middle of the night. Elizabeth, if you're out there, we're doing everything we possibly can to help you. We love you. We want you to come home safely to us. We had every major newscast or morning show that you can think of doing live feeds and stuff like that and it was important to get Ed and Lois out there and we did get them out there that first morning. We just can't even fathom who it is or why they took her. It's painful if you see any of it how devastated they were. We can't believe that it's really happened. And I remember from this time her parents were on the news making pleas a lot. It was such a big case. It was always on the news. This is one of the first cases I remember really following. It's kind of almost similar-ish timing to Mora where the internet was kind of in its true crime infancy. And I think that's why this one got so widespread and so much kind of even international attention because it was one of the first ones that was spread online essentially. Yeah. And I I remember the news, it was almost like daily updates. Even I live all the way in New York, so it was all over. A massive search was undertaken for Elizabeth with up to 2,000 volunteers involved. Authorities also used search dogs and planes. There was little usable evidence found at the smart home. There was no fingerprints or DNA of the abductor. Um, They also searched the house with bloodhounds and found nothing. So this is part of what that investigator was saying about how the police that were handling it, because it was the middle of the night, were rookies. Um, They said that the crime scene was basically completely contaminated because it wasn't sealed off. And Elizabeth's family had called their like extended relatives and everyone rushed over. Kind of like a similar thing happened with John Bonet, I believe, where everyone was just in a panic, like running all over the house. So the crime scene was like totally contaminated. At the time, obviously, the abductor's identity was unknown, but we now know that this is a man named Brian David Mitchell. Um, Before we get into what happened to Elizabeth and what she endured while she was kidnapped, we'll we'll go into his background a little bit. Brian David Mitchell was born on October 18th, 1953, making him 48 years old at the time that this happened. He was born in Salt Lake City and was the third of six children born into a Mormon family. His mother was a teacher and his father was a social worker. As part of his sex education, Brian's father would show him explicit photos. To teach him independence, his father would drop him to parts of the city that he wasn't familiar with and would leave him to find his own way home. Brian's trouble seemed to start around age 16 when he exposed himself to a child and he was sent to juvenile hall. He got married at age 19 to a 16-year-old female named Karen Minor. They had two children together and ended up getting divorced. Karen was awarded custody of both children, and Brian ended up taking the children illegally to New Hampshire for a period of time. He stayed in New Hampshire for two years where he joined Hare Krishna Commune. 
Um, and he was known to abuse drugs and alcohol. He returned to Salt Lake City and got married to a woman named Debbie. They had two children together, and Debbie had three children from a previous marriage. They ended up divorcing in 1984 after Debbie alleged that Brian had been abusive during their marriage. She also claimed that Brian had sexually abused their three-year-old son. This couldn't be medically proven, but all future visitation with Brian's children were supervised by the Division of Child and Family Services. One of Debbie's daughters from her marriage would later claim that Brian also sexually abused her for four years. Not a nice guy. No, he's like an actual nightmare. On the day that Brian and Debbie's divorce was finalized, he married a woman named Wanda Elaine Barzi. Wanda was born in Salt Lake City on November 6, 1945. Wanda was 40 at the time and had six children from a previous marriage. So Wanda is the one that he's with when he abducts Elizabeth. Wanda's relationship with her children was troubled. One daughter described her as a monster and said that Wanda once fed her the family's pet rabbit for dinner. Wanda and Brian were actively involved in the LDS church. Brian started going by the name Emmanuel, and he claimed to be a prophet from God who experienced visions. Wanda started using the name Hepzibah, and the couple would end up being excommunicated from the church for being too extreme. They started panhandling and preaching in downtown Salt Lake City. Brian started dressing like Jesus, wearing white robes, and he grew a beard. After Brian kidnapped Elizabeth, he took her into the woods just outside of Salt Lake City where he had a camp set up. Wanda was there waiting for him. Elizabeth said that Wanda eventually just proceeded to wash my feet and told me to change out of my pajamas into a robe-type garment. And when I refused, she said if I didn't, she would have Brian come rip my pajamas off. I put the robe on. He came and performed a ceremony, which was to marry me to him. And after that, he proceeded to rape me. She led me inside the tent and she sat me down on this upturned bucket. I just remember being so terrified. She started washing my feet and then she started to try to undress me. Well, I was really shy as a 14 year old. And I remember begging and pleading with her, telling her I'd showered last night, that I wasn't dirty, that I wasn't gonna take my pajamas off. She finally just said, fine, okay, put this robe on. I pulled it on over my head, and then I took my pajamas off underneath because she had told me that if, that if I didn't let her do it, um, then she would have Emmanuel come in and he'd rip my clothes off me. I remember I took my pajamas off, but I didn't take my underwear off. And she threatened me yet again that if I didn't do it, she'd have Emmanuel come in and he'd rip my underwear off. So I remember wiggling out of my underwear and then she got up and left me alone in the tent. I just remember feeling like I had just sunken into complete hopelessness, despair. being so confused and feeling so scared and just so overwhelmed. Brian also told Elizabeth that he was an angel and a Davidic king who would emerge in seven years, be stoned by a mob, lie dead in the streets for three days, and then raise up and kill the Antichrist. Very Lori Vello of him. <laughs> yeah. He told Elizabeth that she was the first of many virgin brides that he was going to kidnap and that each bride was to accompany him as he battled the Antichrist. 
in the documentary, Elizabeth, she spoke about this, about her first day there and kind of like getting to the camp. She said when he took her from the house and while they're like walking to the camp, it was basically like climbing like a big mountain. And she thought about running, but he made sure to always be behind her and like downhill from her. So there was really nowhere she could go. And um, basically when she first got there and he told her that they were married and um, that they were going to consummate the marriage, she told him these parts just really like made me sad and make you really think about how young she was. She kind of knew what the consummating the marriage meant. And she told him that she hadn't even had her period yet and that she was too young. After she said that, he, I guess, turned to like Hepzibah and said like, she hasn't had her period yet. Is it still okay? And Hepzibah was like, yeah, 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 it's fine. Hepzibah is Wanda. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So Wanda's her real name and Hepzibah is her fake name just like how brian's his real name and emmanuel yeah, is yeah. his fake name um she also said that she thought to have sex you had to face each other so she thought by rolling on her stomach that would be a good way to protect herself so she rolled onto her stomach and put her legs together but obviously that didn't matter but just goes to show you like how young and kind of naive she was she yeah. was brought up kind of sheltered she said that about herself she said that she wasn't unintelligent but that she was very naive and that she kind of had a sheltered upbringing but that made me very sad for her and she said that after the first rape happened that she just wished she was dead after that Hmm. (sighs) over and over he said it's time for us to consummate our marriage now and i remember thinking wait a second mean what I think he means? No. No. I tried to go over all the reasons why this couldn't be legal or binding, why this wasn't okay. I was 14 years old. Did he realize that? I told him I hadn't even started my period yet. And that stopped him for about half a second, long enough for him to yell out, Hepzibah, is it okay that she hasn't started her period yet? This woman, Hepzibah, Wanda Bar Z, she yelled back, it's fine. No matter how much begging or pleading or crying, I did. It just didn't make a difference to him. He physically grabbed me and forced me down onto the ground. <sighs> I thought you had to face each other to have sex. And so I thought, If I rolled over onto my stomach and I crossed my legs and I remember holding holding my arms up just right under my chest so he couldn't touch me, crossing my legs as hard as I could, rolling on my stomach, he wouldn't be able to to rape me. Well, I was terribly mistaken. I remember he just pulled up the robe and raped me. And I was devastated. And I remember just thinking, how on earth did this happen to me? And I 
At that point, he got up and he kind of smiled and walked out of the tent, left me alone in the tent. I just remember lying on the ground, just feeling so shattered, feeling like I truly was broken, feeling like there was no coming back from this, that it would be better if I were dead. So then the next day, he tied her up with a metal cable um, to a tree. This gave her limited mobility. Outside of the tent that she occupied, Brian told Elizabeth that she had to take a new name and she chose Esther after Esther in the Old Testament. Brian also sometimes called her Shearzebub. Um, That name is possibly the first mentioned son of Isaiah. The name means the remnant shall return and was prophetic, offering hope to the people of Israel that although they were going to be sent into exile and their temple destroyed, God remained faithful and would deliver a remnant from Babylon and bring them back to their land. Another name that Brian called Elizabeth was Augustine. So they just have all these different names. Yeah. Brian repeatedly raped Elizabeth, sometimes up to four times a day. He also forced her to look at pornographic magazines and regularly threatened to kill her. He made her drink alcohol and take drugs to lower her resistance. Um, Elizabeth has said that Brian starved her for days at a time. She once tried to stop him raping her by biting him, and Elizabeth testified in court eventually. She said that, he said, if I did that, he would never have sex with me again. I would be the most miserable woman in the world. He said that, but it didn't stop him. Brian and Wanda used to take Elizabeth out in public while she was kidnapped. So Brian used to always go out into public, and he would go down to Salt Lake City to preach and kind of just be like that guy on the corner yelling about God, basically trying to get donations. Elizabeth said that she remembered that one day he came back because her and Wanda would just be left at the camp for days. They'd have no food. They'd just be stuck there waiting for him to come back. And one day, Brian and Wanda got a big fight about this. Wanda was saying she wants to be able to go out and go down to the town, but obviously they couldn't leave Elizabeth alone. So they decided that they would start bringing Elizabeth out with them. Um, So their plan to get her out in the town was they made her cover her face with like a veil type headscarf thing. And she had to wear robes. I mean, if you follow the case, you'll recognize what she was wearing. It's so crazy that there's actually a photo of her. Like, I feel like her eyes are quite noticeable, but maybe just because we know her now, like she's been in the media for so long. But yeah, she's at like at a house. She's got the white veil, the white kind of face covering on. It's just crazy that she was out there for a long time. She said like they'd go out and it was almost like they were invisible because people wouldn't even look at them. And I know it sounds shitty, but you know, when you see like religious people trying to like hand out flyers or religious people in the street or not even religious people just like people asking for money people that you don't want to interact with people tend to try to like not make eye contact like don't look you know like it sounds like a bad thing to say but we all know it's true so i feel like with the way they were dressed and with him preaching religion just like out in the street people were probably kind of avoiding them so two months after they kidnapped Elizabeth, Wanda and Brian decided they want to leave Utah and take her to Boston or New York City. And in order to research where they wanted to go, Wanda and Brian took Elizabeth to the Salt Lake City Public Library. 
a patron at the library noticed due to their unusual outfits, the robes, the veils. However, this person got a look at Elizabeth Elizabeth's eyes and was convinced that she was the missing girl. The police were called and Detective John Ritchie arrived at the library. When he got there, he said he thought the tip was a long shot because at this point, most people would assume that Elizabeth wouldn't be alive anymore. Yeah, and also be in plain sight, essentially, like at a mm-hmm. library, just hanging out. Um, so he questioned Brian. Brian said that the detective was unable to look under the veil because that the women were not allowed to speak in public due to their religious beliefs. So basically the cop was being like, oh, let us see her face. Like we have a report about her. But Elizabeth said like the detective never mentioned the name Elizabeth Smart or anything like that, just that they were looking for a missing girl and that they were trying to get her to remove her veil. But Brian kept arguing that for religious reasons it was like against their religion to remove the veil so obviously that makes things complicated because then no one wants to like discriminate or harm anyone for their religious beliefs so the detective offered for the girl to go into a bathroom to reveal her face privately he said when he testified i upped the pressure one notch at a time and got the same matter of fact response that this was not going to happen he said brian remained calm assertive and very much the same throughout the confrontation So, Brian, he is very manipulative, used religion kind of to get his way, it seems. The detective said that he recognized the civil rights of the group and that he didn't feel there was enough evidence to force the girl to unveil herself. He said, had I more information, anything at all that led me to believe it was Elizabeth, civil rights wouldn't have mattered. Her safety would have been my only consideration. I would have taken off the veil. Brian told the detective that the girl was an 18-year-old relative. The detective said she was taller than I am and she appeared to be about 18. He also said he manipulated the situation so that the female had a chance to whisper in his ear and she didn't. She said he expected a kidnapping victim would take advantage of such an opportunity. So Elizabeth addressed this later on and she said, I felt like Hope was walking out the door. I was mad at myself that I didn't say anything, mad at myself for not taking the chance so close. I felt terrible that the detective hadn't pushed harder and he just walked away. Mitchell started talking about the coming winter and what we would do. One day, we went down to the Salt Lake Library to look into moving to California. Somewhere where we could survive the winter. And so we were sitting at a table in the library, and he was looking at a big map of San Diego and the surrounding area when the homicide detective approached us. He said, I'm a homicide detective, and I, I need to ask you a few questions. He never said Elizabeth Smart. Um, He just kept asking questions like, well, there's, you know, a girl missing. We've had a phone call. It's really important. You know, if I can just see her face, then I can tell everyone else it's not her. And while that was going on, Wanda Barzee had her hand just clamped down on my leg. It was like, you say anything, you are going to regret it. You're going to be in so much trouble. And for so long, I had been told, I'll kill you. I'll kill your family. If you ever do or say anything I don't want you to do, that threat just seemed so real to me that if I spoke out, he'd kill me. The detective wanted to see my face, but Mitchell just kept on falling back on the only people that will ever see her face in her lifetime are me, her father, and her husband. 
And while all this was going on, there was just this raging battle inside me. Because on the one hand, I mean, here's a detective, like, feet away from me. He's just right there. What if I did say something? What if I did do something? And the police officer didn't believe me. Um, what if I'd probably never see the light of day again? At that moment in time, I remember just feeling like he really will kill me if I say something. He really will kill my family if I say something. Nobody stopped him from kidnapping me. Don't do anything that's going to jeopardize your life. Don't do anything that's going to jeopardize your family's life. But this is a trained officer. He's going to see through it. It's going to be OK. Mitchell just kept on falling back on, I'm sorry, that would be against our religion, and was so convincing that the detective finally did turn away. As the police officer walked away, I thought, I should have screamed. I should have yelled. Maybe I, maybe I would have been rescued. Um, she talked about this more in the documentary as well. She said, because a lot of it is always just people being like, why didn't you say anything? She was out in public. She was, there was the detective here and she just kept quiet. And she said that she was just so scared because Brian, Emmanuel, whatever you want to call him, told her basically every single day that he would kill her. He had already at this point broken into her home and kidnapped her. So like, why wouldn't she think that he would do these things? He was telling her that if she ever tried to do anything, he would never get caught. And that if she did anything, he would go and kill her mom and sister and all these things. So she was just so terrified. And she also said she had a fear that for some reason, like they wouldn't believe that she was Elizabeth and they would believe Brian over her and whatever lies that he came up with. And then at that point, she'd spoken up and they didn't believe her and she was just stuck with them she was like that he would just kill me you also have to remember she's young she's only 14 she lived a pretty sheltered life and she did say she was like just hoping 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 inside that this guy was a a trained officer and would like sense it or like save her somehow but it didn't work out that way so that detective he left the trio alone after spending about 30 minutes with them I can't even imagine how he would feel after all this. Like, obviously, it had a happy outcome in the end, but imagine knowing that you'd been that close. As a police officer, I feel like that would definitely be a hard thing to deal with. Yeah, and there's a, a few other people who were that close too, but it's just, it seems like Brian was just one of those people that's very, like, confident and assertive where you're just like, whoa, okay, like, he didn't stifle or anything. So around that same time, there was an employee of a news agency in Utah had a weird encounter with Brian. Her name was Heidi Perry, and she said that she saw Brian taking down posters of Elizabeth that had been hanging in the lobby of the building. Brian told Heidi that Elizabeth had, quote, been found and the post didn't need to be up anymore. When Heidi told him that she worked at the newspaper and that she would have known if Elizabeth had been found, Brian replied that he read it in the other newspaper. Heidi said that Brian's demeanor was calm as he kept tearing down the posters, but she went upstairs to get some help and that's when he fled. On July 24th, 2002, Brian and Wanda attempted to abduct one of Elizabeth's cousins. It's believed that the cousin was 15, which was around the same age as Elizabeth. Elizabeth was forced to lead Brian and Wanda to the home of her cousin. What they didn't know, though, is that the younger cousin had been sharing a room with her older sister, Jessica, but since Elizabeth had disappeared, the house had been remodeled and the younger girl had her own bedroom now. Brian attempted to cut through a window and Jessica woke up because a thin object sticking through her window blinds had knocked over a picture on the desk in front of the window. So she must have run out to the bedroom and her father heard the commotion and came out and saw what was happening. 
His name's Stephen Wright. He called the police and the FBI arrived to question him. He said they accused him of staging the break-in. It was hell with the breaking in. It was hell with the cops accusing me. It was hell trying to find out who did this. I can't. That was such a ballsy move by them to try and take another teenage girl in the same family. Yeah. So Elizabeth said Brian, like he just kind of talked nonstop during the day about just anything random bullshit. But one day he was talking about where either like his mom or someone in his family lived, and Elizabeth said she made the mistake of being like, "Oh, my cousin lives like right over there." And then immediately he was like, what? And she knew she'd made a mistake. And she said the next day he was like, God has come to me. I will be taking your cousin as my next wife. Mm. Like how fucking terrifying. And then that's what I mean with how people are like, why didn't she do anything? Why didn't she do anything? He's already out here literally trying to abduct her cousin now. It's not like he's not following through on the threats. Like, you you know, he's kidnapped her. He's attempting, like, he seems like he's... He does what he says he's going to do. From the beginning, my captors told me that I wasn't going to be allowed to speak about my family, my parents, my siblings, my my life prior to the moment that he kidnapped me. He spoke about where his mother lived. As he spoke about that area, I recognized it and realized that that's where my cousin lived. And, and I naively said, oh, my cousin, my, like my best friend, she just lives like a block away from your mom. And like this was the first time that Mitchell didn't get mad at me about speaking about my family. A couple days later, he comes and he's like, oh, I received revelation and you're not going to like it. The Lord has commanded me to go forth and plunder your cousin Olivia to be wife number two. And I just, I felt like I'd betrayed my family. And I remember the day came and as he got ready, he pulled out the knife that he had kidnapped me with and he held it up to me and he said, do you recognize this? And then he left. So as we mentioned quickly before, Brian and Wanda took Elizabeth out in public a lot. They took her to grocery stores and a restaurant, but no one really took any notice. And that's where they also took her to a party in the fall of 2002 where she was actually photographed. So there's tons of photos online. She's got the veil. Like literally all you can see are her eyes and her eyebrows. Um, Wild (laughs) that she was at a party and no one figured it out. Yeah, the guy. there's a guy in that picture with them. It's like Elizabeth a random guy at the party and Brian in the photo and um, the guy, I don't remember what his name was, but he was interviewed in the documentary and he said that the people at the party were talking about Brian and how he just started getting like wasted and started becoming really aggressive and annoying, like just drinking a lot, being loud. And they ended up like kicking him out basically. And like, while that was all happening, this guy that's in the picture, he said to Elizabeth, he said he could tell that she was young, but didn't really know how young she was. And that he literally told her was like, you need to get away from this guy. He's no good for you. And he said she didn't say anything, but he could tell that she was very scared to be there and that he still feels very guilty for not realizing like that she really needed help. And the man was really aggressive right from the beginning. He immediately was someone who drew all the attention to him and and had to be managed. He bummed a beer, and I turned them on to my uh, bootleg homemade absinthe. 
He carried the glass jar around and he kept taking big drinks of it. And he eventually, someone else was like, hey, you're drinking it all. So they took it away from him. He was starting to get more and more uh, agitated while being more and more obnoxious. I said, get the prophet the hell out of the house because the punks were on his ass. This other woman just came up and grabbed him and said, you need to leave right now. Uh, Elizabeth didn't say anything. She was just quiet. I do recall telling her specifically to ditch David. I'm like, this guy's an ass. Get away. He, he is, he's trouble. Elizabeth just seemed scared and lost. I felt bad for her, but I didn't feel it was my position to, uh, to do anything but advise her to leave. I would apologize to her if I saw her, that I, that I didn't recognize the pain she was in, that I didn't take action. The whole thing was really sad. Sorry. That's just... I have a daughter. <laughs> I'm family, I have friends. I can't believe this kind of stuff happens. I... I started to wonder, will I ever be rescued? Maybe I don't. And maybe I die. I guess you just don't want to get involved in someone else's business. You would assume it's mm -hmm. like you would, the assumption would be it was a choice for her to be there, you know, whether yes. or not, you know, even if like, do you know what I mean? Like you're not going to really get involved in someone's business. Yeah. I, I can understand that. Yeah. Cause you don't know their story or situation. She's literally not saying anything. And she said she was just terrified to be at that party. Like she'd never seen anything like it. Cause it was people drinking, doing drugs, like kind of like an alt crowd doing crazy things like that. So she was just very overwhelmed at the time. So in September 2002, Wanda and Brian left Salt Lake City with Elizabeth and they moved to San Diego County in California. They set up camp in a dry creek bed in Lakeside. They moved location frequently, often in the middle of the night. I guess Brian might have got a bit spooked at some point, so they had to, you know, take off in the middle of the night. In February 2003, Brian was arrested for breaking into a church and he spent several days in jail over this incident. In October 2002, though, Mary Catherine had a realisation about where she'd heard the abductor's voice. She remembered that the Smart family had hired a man named Emmanuel to work on the roof and to rake leaves at their house. Ed and Lois eventually wrote a book about this whole situation and they recalled some of they record some information about Mary Catherine's sudden memory. They said, she told us that she'd been reading the Guinness Book of World Records and she saw a photo of a very muscular woman and something triggered her memory of who, who took her sister. It's strange because Brian David Mitchell was a thin man. Police are pretty skeptical of this information because I feel like Emmanuel had only worked for the family for a day or a very short time anyway and a long time had since elapsed since any of the family had heard his voice. The family, though, had a sketch artist draw a manual based on their descriptions and the sketch was given to the media in two February 2003 where it was shown on Larry King Live and also on America's Most Wanted. Brian at the time was basically like 
a beggar outside of a grocery store or something. He had a sign that he was looking for work. Uh, Lois was there with the kids. She, she gave him some money and she was like, oh, we definitely like have some work that you can do like if you're looking for work. So they kind of also hired him as like a good deed, like trying to be nice people. So they hired him to do some work on their roof. And since he was doing work on the roof, he was kind of able to figure out the layout of the house. Just a series of unfortunate circumstances, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so somehow the sketch was recognized by members of Brian's family who gave police current photos of him and those photos were also made public. On March 12, 2003, Brian was spotted with a woman and a girl in Sandy, Utah by two separate people who had seen his photo on the news. Sandy's just 15 miles from where Elizabeth was abducted from. So they'd left Utah, gone to California, and then they were back in Utah. And another thing that's crazy, sorry, I keep adding them, just like random fucking facts. <laughs> so after Mary Catherine had said she recognized the guy and thought it was this Emmanuel person, the police, I don't even get, there's a whole other person that the police were like, it's definitely this other guy. But yeah. um, I didn't include all the information about the other suspects in this episode just for brevity, but yeah, they, they did yeah. have some very strong other suspects in the case. Yeah, so- Police were really banking on it being like this other guy who had just like who had robbed their house before in the past and they really thought it was this guy. So when Mary Catherine comes out and she's like, no, 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 it's this guy. They're like, meh. They took the information and they specifically told the Smart family that they couldn't share it because even if they were going to look into it, if it was this guy. They didn't want to scare him off. So a couple of weeks went by where the family to the media just had to keep lying, saying that there was nothing going on, blah, blah, blah. And... The police were so hell-bent on this other guy being involved that they were basically ready. And that guy died. So they were basically ready to close the case, be done with it, and just say that that guy did it and Elizabeth was probably dead. So Elizabeth's father actually went to John Walsh himself from America's Most Wanted, and he gave him the information about this Emmanuel person. And John Walsh aired it on America's Most Wanted against the police w- police's wishes and they did that on their own. And it was kind of like a, a risk that they were willing to take at that point, but it ended up paying off because then, like you said, Brian's family were like, mm, I feel like that could be our family member. Yeah, it looks like Emmanuel Brian. So sometimes you just got to do what's in your heart against what the police recommend. Ed Smart reaches out and he says, the Salt Lake City Police believe that Richard Reese holds the key to Elizabeth's whereabouts, that he's dead, he probably raped and murdered her and buried her in the desert, and that we should have a memorial service. And Lois is saying, for the good of the family, maybe we should close the case. Should I do that, John? And I went, I don't know what to tell you, Ed. The likelihood and the odds are against you find Elizabeth alive. That's a fact. But if you truly believe she's alive and you don't want to give up, give me something. I've got to have something new. Their young daughter has now said that she believes that Reese wasn't the guy in there that night, that it may have been another guy that did some work on their roof, an itinerant guy that worked at a homeless shelter, and uh, he may be a... All of us are going, oh my gosh, John Walsh just broke that. About a month later, we just got to the point as a family that we've got to go out with this. Well, it wasn't an easy call for some of the other members of the Smart family to finally push it and organize that family press conference because the law enforcement was not on board with that. That was a pretty tense time. He was going about the country from homeless shelter to homeless shelter, preaching 
born-again Christianity. We were criticized hugely by law enforcement, and yet within two weeks, a lead came in. The great thing was when Tom Holbrook and his, and his wife Lisa, Brian David Mitchell's sister, told the police who it was. So the three people that were seen by the two witnesses had been seen carrying bedrolls and bags and they were walking down the street. Police went to the area and they, quote, found a male and two females at the side of the road. Sandy officers questioned the three and determined that one of them was possibly Elizabeth Smart. So Elizabeth and Wanda had been wearing wigs and veils at the time. All three of them were taken to a police station where it was confirmed that the young female was Elizabeth. Brian Mitchell's off to the side, still kind of talking, still trying to be being loud. You could tell that she was very nervous. She kept kind of darting her eyes, her gaze back to that direction. Officer Howe delivered the flyer to me. I held it right next to Elizabeth's face, and we both said, that's you. And she says, that's not me. Of course I wanted to be rescued, but I'd spent the last nine months being very abused emotionally and sexually and mentally. We told her, you're safe now. Um, it's over. All you have to do is say, you're Elizabeth Smart. She denied it for about 45 minutes, adamantly, that she was not Elizabeth Smart. At that point, I still felt very threatened. My captors are both right there with those same threats and the same pressures of if you don't do exactly what we've told you, exactly what we've prepared you for, we're gonna kill you and we're gonna kill your family and nobody stopped us from doing whatever the hell we wanted before. <laughs> Who's gonna stop us now? Elizabeth was denying that she was Elizabeth. So we loaded up, put Brian in one car, wanted another car, Elizabeth and I think Officer Jones's car. They immediately turned me around and handcuffed my hands behind my back. And in my mind, when a person is handcuffed, they're in trouble. I says, Elizabeth, just for your peace of mind, for the, the sake for your family, just tell me that you're Elizabeth Smart. What if I said I was Elizabeth Smart? They didn't believe me. They released me back to my captors. Would I ever see the light of day again? Right before we were getting her into my car, um, Sergeant Quisada held her out and said, you know, this is your one last chance to tell us on your own free will who you are. You could tell she was kind of getting a little bit emotional. I asked her, are you Elizabeth Smart? And she says, thou say it. She said the words, thou say it. For the previous nine months, we didn't speak like you and yours. It was thee and thy and thou. And he'd say, oh, well, thou sayest. Like, you've said it, that's, that's what it's gonna be. That's, that's how it is. And I gave that answer because Mitchell was not that far away. But if he heard me answer in that way, he might not know what I was answering to. I looked at Officer O'Neill and we looked at each other and I said, we'll take that as a yes. And I believe all the other officers that were surrounding her at that point felt the same way. Elizabeth's family spoke about the moment that the family was reunited. She said, all of the children out there deserve to come back to their parents the way Elizabeth has come back to us. It's nothing but a miracle. I just held her, held her the whole way home. I had to take a double take and pull back away from her and say, is it really you? 
her uncle David said, words cannot express how incredibly grateful we are. Do miracles still exist? Our, our answer is yes. The Smart family said that Elizabeth was sharp and healthy. During her reunion with her parents, she asked questions about her siblings and she was shocked to hear that her younger brother had gotten straight A's on his report card. The police were amazed about the amount of information that Elizabeth was giving them during their interview. FBI agent Chip Burris said, what a great day it is for Salt Lake. There are law enforcement officials up there in the police station with wide grins on their faces. I cannot tell you how many cases we've had where the end outcome was not this. One of the smarts neighbors named Shelly said, you know, we've been waiting for this day for a long time. We just wanted to celebrate. We're so happy for the family. We never gave up. I remember just sitting there just thinking what is going to happen next and the door bursting open without any warning and there was my dad. And there across the way sitting on the sofa is Elizabeth with her arms folded. I don't think I knew how to react because I knew so much had changed. I knew so much had happened. There was just not this response that I would just, you know, feel the excitement of, you know, reuniting. And it really wasn't until he came running over and started hugging me that I felt safe to react. I held her back and I said, Elizabeth, is it really you? And finally she said, yes, Dad. And then she starts to cry and, and we're just a mess, a mess of happiness and joy. I was just so thrilled to be able to look at her and see her and hear her talk and know that she wanted to be back with us as a family. It made me feel like this place that I'd been retreating inside to for so long, I didn't have to retreat there anymore. It was gonna be okay. When he was arrested, the court requested that Brian undergo a competency evaluation based on the claims of him being a religious prophet. He was held at the Utah State Hospital while this was undertaken. Stephen Golding, a psychologist hired by the defense, distinguished between belief and delusion and concluded that Brian was in fact delusional. It was his opinion that Brian was not competent to stand trial. So the court ended up overruling this and Brian was found competent in 2004. There were plea negotiations that began between the defense and prosecution. Brian was willing to plead guilty to kidnapping and burglary for 10 to 15 year sentence on the condition that Elizabeth wasn't allowed to testify, but the prosecution refused to drop sexual assault charges against him and they couldn't reach an agreement. In February 2005, a psychologist named Jennifer Skeep interviewed Brian again. She had previously interviewed him and deemed him competent, but after that interview, they said that he was no longer competent. So there's all this back and forth, a bit like the whole T Stark thing that we did in the last episode, but a lot of back mm-hmm. and forth about his competency. 15-year-old Elizabeth Smart was found alive today. Brian, David Mitchell, and Wanda Eileen Barzi have now been booked on charges. You're not Jesus no, Christ. I'm not Jesus Christ, but I am. You are a prophet. I'm, I'm his servant. You're his servant. I'm the Lord's servant. FBI agent Jeff Ross and I interrogated Brian. Tell us about how you came to have Elizabeth Smart. And as soon as we were getting close to the details of him admitting that he had entered that house unlawfully and taken her by force, then he would wing out and he would get quiet, defensive, and, and uh, retreat into his religious uh, mode. Get thee behind me, Satan! I'd spent about eight years working in a mental hospital in Ohio, and during my time working there, I had come in contact with plenty of people that would pretend to be crazy, and within the first few minutes of interacting with them, that was the impression that I got. 
this was all just a big show. The only admission that he ever made to us at one point, he said that he had, quote, I plundered Ed Smart. Brian began acting out in court, but the jail staff said that they observed no change in his behaviour while he was in the jail. And the kind of this indicates that he was putting on a show for the courtroom. Judge Judy Atherton agreed with the defence that Brian was showing signs of psychosis and he was readmitted to Utah State Hospital on August 11, 2005, and he remained there until 2008. During that time, no staff observed Brian being paranoid in a pathological sense. In February 2006, a bill went before Utah legislature that saw the right to forcibly medicate defendants to make sure they were competent to stand trial. They did seek permission to forcibly medicate Wanda at that time, and in June 2006, a judge approved that. On December 18, 2006, Brian was declared unfit yet again. He had screamed at a judge during a hearing to forsake those robes and kneel in the dust. And I found this interesting. On December 12, 2008, it was reported that there was a decision that Brian could not be legally forcibly medicated to re- restore his mental competency. So it's interesting they would do it for Wanda, but not for Brian. Which makes no sense. I'm sure there's a lot of you know legal back and forth regarding those decisions, but it is interesting how one but and it also just shows how like manipulative he is because how people are like no he's literally fine and then he puts on a show yeah he just keeps getting his way and the trial doesn't end up happening for like eight years or something from when he was arrested it's crazy um so the case was transferred to the federal court on october 10 2008 the issue of brian's competency went on and on and on through to december 2009 another example of brian's behavior during that time was that he burst out singing hymns in court I want to give you every opportunity to uh, interact with me. And so... um, The time is far spent, there is little remaining To publish glad tidings by sea and by land Then hasten ye heralds, go forward proclaiming Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand! Repent, for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Elizabeth described Brian as smart, articulate, evil, wicked, manipulative, sneaky, slimy, selfish, greedy, not spiritual, not religious, and not close to God. So they conducted more and more competency evaluations. One doctor said that Brian was fully aware of his actions and he was attempting to deceive the court. Another doctor reviewed 210 sources and 57 different interviews, including Brian, Wanda, his family, and Elizabeth. And another expert said that Brian was competent to stand trial and had diagnosed him with non-exclusive pedophilia, antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, malingering, and alcohol abuse. So finally, Brian was deemed competent to stand trial on March 1st, 2010. Wanda eventually pled guilty and she was sentenced to concurrent terms of 15 years in state and federal prison. In 2016, her federal imprisonment was terminated and she was transferred to the Utah State Prison in Draper, Utah to serve her state prison sentence. She was released in September 2018 at the age of 72, which Elizabeth wasn't happy about. She wrote, may we all remain vigilant in watching over our families, friends, and community from anyone who would seek to hurt or take advantage. I truly believe that life is meant to be happy and beautiful, and no matter what happens, that will remain my goal for me and my family. 
She also said, I do believe she's a threat. For me, I know the depth of her depravity. So conditions of Wanda's release included mental health treatment and an order that she wasn't allowed to contact any members of Elizabeth's family, and she also voluntarily agreed to not go to any locations that the Smart family may frequent. Three months after Wanda's release, it was revealed that she was living near a Salt Lake City elementary school. There were apparently no restrictions about how close she could live to a school, but she wasn't allowed to go on school property. But I know that was kind of a bit of an uproar at the time. People weren't happy about that. Yeah. So Brian's trial finally began on November 8th, 2010. The defense acknowledged that Brian was responsible for the crimes, but that he was legally insane when he committed them. And they argued that he should be found not guilty by reason of insanity. On December 11, 2010, the jury rejected the insanity story and found him guilty of kidnapping and transporting a minor across state lines with the intent to engage in sexual activity. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and he's currently serving his sentence in Indiana. So since her abduction, Elizabeth has been a very vocal supporter of sexual predator legislation and also of the Amber Alert system. She's a very public figure. She's got her public Instagram. She still is doing this kind of work to this day. In May 2008, she traveled to Washington where she presented a book titled You Are Not Alone. It covered her story as well as the stories of four other recovered young adults and the book was depart- the book was published by the U.S. Department of Justice. In 2009, she spoke at the uh, Women's Conference in California, which was hosted by Maria Shriver, and the event was focused on how to overcome obstacles in life. She did leave Salt Lake City in 2009 and went to serve as a church missionary in Paris. In 2011, she founded the Elizabeth Smart Foundation, which aims to bring hope and end the victimization and exploitation of sexual assault through prevention, recovery, and advocacy. ABC News announced in 2011 that Elizabeth would work as a commentator for them, mainly focusing on missing people. She's very busy. (laughs) Yeah, she's done a lot. Yeah. While she was in Paris working for the church, she met a Scottish man named Matthew Gilmore. In January 2012, after they dated for one year, they got engaged. They married in February 2012 in a private ceremony in Hawaii. The couple has since had three children together. In February 2014, Elizabeth testified before the Utah State House of Representatives in favor of HB 286. That bill would create an optional curriculum for use in Utah schools to provide training on child sexual abuse prevention. She wrote a book in 2018 titled Where There's Hope, Healing, Moving Forward and Never Giving Up. In 2019, Lois filed for divorce from Ed because he had come out as gay. Ed wrote a letter about his sexuality and said it was one of the hardest letters I've ever written. I've recently acknowledged to myself and my family that I am gay. The decision to be honest and truthful about my orientation comes with its own set of challenges, but at the same time, it is a huge relief. Living with the pain and guilt I have for so many years, not willing to accept the truth about my orientation has at times brought me to the point where I question whether life was worth living. Ed said that Lois was loyal and that she's an extraordinary mother. He said, I deeply regret the excruciating pain this has caused her. Hurting her was never my intent. While our marriage will end, my love for Lois and everyone in my family is eternal. Elizabeth made a statement at the time and she said, the decisions are very personal. As such, I will not pass judgment and rather am focusing on loving and supporting them and other members of my family. It's interesting that 2019, so 17 years essentially after she was abducted, the family are still such public figures that they need to make a public statement about something like that. I remember when it happened too, it was like such a random twist to the story Yeah, because obviously there's no problem with anyone being gay, but it was just, they were seen as this like wholesome, religious, like tight knit family. And 
it just wasn't something you would have ever guessed, Expected. which which I know is normal and a lot of people hide it, but it was just unexpected. Yeah. Um, so in 2019, while traveling home to Utah on a Delta flight, Elizabeth has said that she was woken up by a male passenger next to her rubbing her inner thigh. She said, I'd been asleep and all of a sudden I woke up and I felt someone's hand rubbing in between my legs on my inner thigh. And she reported the incident. Delta said, we took the matter seriously and have continued to cooperate with Ms. Smart and the appropriate authorities as the matter is investigated. So after this, she began a self-defense program for women and girls called Smart Defense. She said, it doesn't matter who you are, what you're wearing. None of those things matter if you're abused or taken advantage of. It's not your fault and you have every right to defend yourself, to take care of yourself and to do what you need to stay safe. And this is kind of a last random side note. She went on The Masked Dancer in 2021 where she competed as the moth. (laughs) So since her abduction and recovery, she's obviously still in that kind of prevention space. She's working a lot in that. She's very vocal about it. She'll often make statements when a crime or a situation happens. Um, she'll have, you know, often make public statements about it just based on her past experience. Yeah, she's very well spoken in the autobiography thing. She tells the whole story herself. She talks about it in like pretty great detail and just seems very mature and like has a great understanding for a lot of things, but I thought that she did such an amazing job, like telling the story and kind of um, like standing up for herself. Cause so many people are like, why don't you run? Why didn't you do this? And she's really good at explaining like how it felt to her as a 14 year old and why she was so terrified to even try to get help. It's amazing really what she's done with her life. Like when you think what happened to her and the trauma that she endured could have been enough to kind of send her in a downward spiral, but she really, really has tried to kind of grow from it and take what she can from it. And I couldn't even imagine as her waiting for him to go to trial for that long, for like eight years or something, just knowing he... And other people had said that they were like, he's just hanging out in like a mental hospital type place watching TV, hardly being punished, like while they're trying to prove his competency. I would have been so annoyed if I was her. Her Instagram is Elizabeth Smart Official. Her bio says survivor, mother, wife. And the latest thing she seems to have been working on is she's written a course about consent called Wholehearted Consent. Um, so she's been posting a lot about that if you want to go and read. And she even speaks about like, this is a post just from yesterday. Um, one aspect of consent that trips people up is that you need to ask for it every time. Why? Because people are dynamic and ever changing. Like she's very vocal, um, about these types of issues and she's, yeah, putting all the information out there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I do recommend going to check out her Instagram. She posts lots of photos of her family. You can see what she's been up to in the last, you know, 20 odd years or since this all happened to her. She's really made the most out of a horrible situation. Yeah, and definitely check out the the A&E autobiography on her. It's two like hour long episodes, but it's really interesting if you have interest in the case because just like a ton of inside information. Um, but I guess that's really it for Elizabeth's story. Um, it was a very big one when it happened. Um, so it was, it was cool to be able to talk about it. Definitely. I'm glad that we got to do it. And it was just like the 20th something anniversary of it too, recently, when she was abducted, I think. Well, June, I think she was abducted in June. So the, yeah, last year must have been the 20th and this year will be the 21st. Mm. 
maybe when the 20th anniversary when she was rescued. Oh, yeah. Could, yeah, yeah. Actually, it would have been because yeah, she yeah. was in March. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what it was. All right. So everything. We'll have a blog on this episode. If you guys want to see any of the stuff we were talking about, we'll link any of the things we were talking about at truecrimesocietyblog.com. Follow us on Instagram at truecrimesociety. Uh, my account is stephsum underscore olivia's tcs olivia if you want to see what we're up to if you're listening on spotify make sure you follow us on spotify um, and you can leave us a rating or any little comments share the podcast with your friends on instagram whatever else and any of the sponsors will be in the episode description if you ever want to check any of them out mother's day is coming up so if any if you need some gifts definitely check out our sponsors that would be great And I think that's really it. So thank you guys for listening. Stay safe out there. Peace out. See ya.